welcome to the Kindness Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Riggs, coming to you from my home office on week... I have no idea what, how many days we've been in this, in this crazy quarantine lockdown, but I hope everyone is um, healthy and safe and um, that you have a good mask supply and a good Purell supply. We have two fabulous episodes coming your way. These last two, this, these are going to be the last two episodes of season one and a couple months ago, Down Syndrome of Louisville hosted a panel of experts all about special needs trusts and guardianships. We had an amazing turnout and um, it was very clear to us that this this topic is something that many people have questions about and that many people want to get going with. And um, so we decided to record it. So we're going to share these recordings. This first episode of part one of this panel is all about special needs trusts. Our executive director, Julie Torzeski, hosted the event and helped field questions. And I'm going to let her introduce our panel of experts. Um, I feel like she does a great job explaining who they are and how they um, are associated with Down syndrome of Louisville. And then part two, um, which will be the next episode that we'll release in a week, that one's going to be all about guardianships. One thing that I personally learned from listening to this, um, to these recordings is that a lot of times we clump together special needs trusts and guardianships thinking that they're the same thing and they are definitely not. And in fact, some lawyers only do guardianship hearings and they don't help with the special needs trusts. Some do, um, but that's how different they really are is that some people don't, um, you know, they, they, they can't help with trust, but they can't help with, with, uh, guardianships. So you are going to learn all about those and the difference. And these panelists are absolutely wonderful and they're fabulous. Our audience asked one, really great questions. And so I hope that you learn, um, from this and, and I hope that it eases your mind a little bit. I know that, that there's some fear, and some just, you know, fear of the unknown of like what on earth, like diving into this world of special needs trusts and and in in the next episode, um, guardianships as well. So I hope you learn a lot. And we want to thank again, thank our panelists for for attending this session that we had a few months ago. So please enjoy special needs trusts. You're listening to the Kindness Warrior Podcast, a Down Syndrome of Louisville production, serving locally, sharing globally. Um, so who we have up here, you may know or, um, or not, this is Richard Bush, and Richard owns the <laughs> Richard and Bush Law Firm, and um, he told me for his introduction that his major claim to fame is his son, Michael, who has Down syndrome, and Michael is performs for us at the walk every year. He has a band, um, very talented guy, and then he does a little legal work on this side. <laughs> so Michael's his claim to fame. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Uh, Richard, now you've worked with a lot of our families. Um, in addition to the panel, Pam Taylor is here as a representative of a family member who's been through this process with Richard, and so um, if you have any questions specifically for a family member, She's here as well. And I hope to, at the end, um, we have a little time. I'm going to have uh, these guys go to their tables and then let you guys disperse to ask personal questions or specific questions as needed. Okay. All right. Then we also have uh, Mr. Gordon Holmes. And he uh, has offices in Indiana and Kentucky. So if there's anybody from Indiana, I'm here as well. Uh, he is a special care planner and assists families in their financial future of their children or other dependents with special needs. And uh, he also has a son, Matthew, who's 25 with special needs. So um, definitely has a heart for what he's doing and um, lots of resources. And you guys often work together, right, with the planning process. So that's awesome. And then uh, Dan Moyers is president of Moyers Financial Services. And he also serves on our foundation board. Um, Dan is the father of Emily Moyers, who's 19. And she's on our Boogie Down crew, hopefully coming to ADA not too long. Um, but obviously has a heart for what he does and knows the financial planning world and is here to share his resources with us. And then finally, Matthew Gooden 
is on the end here. And um, Matthew is the owner of Gooden Law Offices of Special Needs Planning. So he's focused his practice on special needs planning and is also the sister of Rosie, who's in our crowd today and one of our ADA members as well. Mm. Wave to us, Rosie. <laughs> She's the important part, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just her brother. All right. So did I get it all covered? Yep. Anything? All right. So um, I got gathered questions from social media. A lot of people had questions, and also if you RSVP'd, you had a place to put what you wanted to learn from this session. Um, so I do have set questions. I'm not afraid of getting off of this and going organically with whatever comes, you know, whatever we get into and whatever questions you have. So if you have something specific to the topic we're covering, please feel free to jump in and ask um, as well. Okay. Um, so the very first question was, why is it important to have a special needs trust? I don't know which one of you want to jump in on that one first, but... I guess I'll go first. Right. The underlying premise for special needs trust comes from uh, the idea of protecting Medicaid eligibility. Most all of uh, the individuals that we deal with uh, in our families uh, have Medicaid programs in, uh, of one kind or another whether that's SSI or a Michelle P waiver or an SCL waiver or the HCBL waiver, any one of those programs. Those are all Medicaid-based programs. Medicaid has a two-part eligibility, and one part is the disability side, of course, um, and obviously with Down syndrome, we meet that. Although, as an aside, Down syndrome wasn't recognized as a disability by Medicaid until 2001. I had a problem with that. Um, the other side of that is, is the financial side. There's a limitation that the individual cannot have assets in their name of more than $2,000. Almost everybody knows that magic number of $2,000. So, the way to set aside assets for that person is through a special needs trust. The name special needs trust is kind of a generic name. Uh, they started off in the, in the early years called uh, supplemental needs trust. Over the years, the term has graduated, gra gravitated, excuse me, to special needs trusts. And a special needs trust is a trust which meets all of the Medicaid rules so that assets in that trust, whatever they are, do not count towards that $2,000 threshold. So the, the individual, our son or daughter or sibling, whoever that is, their individual assets do not include assets in the trust. Assets of the trust do not belong to the individual. I usually explain it like this. The, the trust is all about the person, it's for the person, but it doesn't belong to the person. And so, for that reason, assets in a trust make a wonderful planning vehicle so that you can set aside um, assets. And I use the word assets generically. It can be money, property, whatever. Um, and those assets can be planned out over a very long period of time, the lifetime of the individual, to, to make sure that that person has everything they need, whether we as parents are here or not, and that's kind of the goal, which brings in our, the, the, the financial planning side. Uh, I'm always happy to tell people I'm not the financial planner. That's Dan and Gordon, and I'll let, those, let them address that part. But that's the beauty of a special needs trust. You can do financial planning, and it doesn't affect Medicaid eligibility. That's the shortest answer I can give. That's great. That's great. When is, uh, Gordon, if you want to take this one, when is the right time to set up a special needs trust? Well, the funding the trust is about quality of life, you know, for the, uh, for the family member, uh, as Richard said, the, the son, the daughter, the sibling. And um, funding the trust from a timing standpoint or setting up the trust is a matter of having it in place to catch assets as opposed to assets flowing directly to uh, the individual that has special needs. Um, timing becomes, becomes an issue because there's um, really uh, two versions of planning. There is the planning that can be done proactively, putting an estate plan in place, including a special needs trust, um, 
and then coordinated from a financial perspective so that assets or resources intended to help the individual with special needs or fund the trust are going to be routed there. Part of this the attorney does, part of it the financial uh, planning uh, professional does, and so a coordinated effort is critical for special needs, uh, for special needs planning. There's a part of the process that I can't do that a qualified attorney can and vice versa. And so over the uh, 22 or so years that my practice is primarily focused on special needs planning, we've cultivated relationships with uh, a number of special needs attorneys because it's essential to work, to work together. So planning proactively or reactively. So proactively is getting an estate plan in place, setting up a special needs trust. That trust may be funded now. It may not be funded until the death of a parent or some family member that either leaves assets to the trust or has designated the trust as a beneficiary. And that's on life insurance, investment accounts, uh, retirement accounts. A special needs trust can hold almost any asset. So if you kind of wonder what can go into a special needs trust, in my years of experience, we've put just about everything imaginable in a special needs trust. Rental property, farmland, <laughs> uh, under professional management, um, cash, life insurance proceeds, um, uh, qualified retirement accounts stretched over a period of years, et cetera. We've, we've, we've really done it all. But reactively, if it's not done before someone dies and assets are going to flow to the individual that has special needs. So let me give you an example. Um, uh, if, a parent, if a parent passes, as an example, um, in some cases, if married, assets are assumed to all transfer to the surviving spouse, unfortunately, without careful planning. Um, state law um, can uh, become involved, the laws of intestacy, and assets can end up going to children of the deceased. That could include a child, uh, a child with special needs. When those assets are inherited, then our options become more limited as to what planning can be done to remedy the situation. Now, somebody may wait eight or ten years to get the Michelle P. waiver. But I got news for you, if they exceed $2,000, they're toast the first of the next month. And so, um, so having plans in place pro uh, proactively is very, very important. Uh, part of it is also a legacy issue. Fortunately, um, the special needs trusts that uh, we work with most often, uh, whoever sets up the trust can direct where the trust assets that are left upon the death of the trust beneficiary are to go, meaning they can be retained by the family, which is huge. You could be talking tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars, and, and the question comes up, where does the money go when the trust beneficiary passes? But unfortunately, if, uh, if a trust has to be set up after the fact, after the assets are already received by the individual with a disability, then the option to direct where they go upon the death of that individual is, is restricted, and there's what we call a, a Medicaid payback clause where the, the state has a lien on the trust. So the answer is sooner versus later, um, because we much prefer the, the, the most positive or attractive options for planning, the most beneficial options. And uh, since you never know when something may, may happen to yourself, we're all on the roads, things happen uh, sooner versus later. Okay. Hey, Julie, Thank can you. I add yes, to please. that? Um, I would agree with Gordon. Um, in my opinion, it's, okay. yeah, um, in my opinion, it, the uh, right time to set it up, again, is sooner rather than later. Um, not to sound bleak, but um, we don't know what tomorrow holds. Um, so every day that goes by that we don't have a plan in place is another potential day where something terrible can happen and then your son or daughter with special needs is left um, dealing with the consequences of not having that plan in place. Um, that's setting the plan up is different um, as Gordon mentioned than funding the trust. It doesn't mean that as soon as we go out and set the trust up that it immediately has to be funded. That can be done later down the road but we at least need to have the plan in place so that if something were to happen, um, assets can flow um, for the benefit of your son or daughter without affecting their eligibility. Um, so definitely sooner rather than later. Okay, and may, Dan and Matthew, if you may want to answer this, uh, there are quite a few younger families here that I see in the crowd, and I know a lot of their questions, or my question would be, so we have the trust set up. What do you advise as a financial side to, to start with as far as funding that trust? What's the first thing you would advise? Well, I guess the first thing I would like us to focus on is um, the difference between a first-party special needs trust and a third-party special needs trust. And, and this terminology is Richard's terminology, which I learned from Richard because 
my daughter's 19 and I'm, she must have been 15 years old before I knew the difference. Um, and if I understand it, and I'll let the lawyer speak to this, it's really the Medicaid payback provision, which is the difference between the two. Do I have that right? Yeah, correct. There's really two main differences. One is whose money is funding the trust, and two, where does the money go when the disabled beneficiary passes away? Um, that's the way I like to look at it as the two main differences. There's other differences, but those are the two big ones. Um, so, yeah. Well, where I was going with that is I am absolutely a proponent in planning early as possible. And if the family puts money into the special needs trust, that can be a third party trust. And that can be funded immediately. It can be funded immediately. Um, and then the family can figure out how to work the taxes and how to do the investments and uh, all, all of that. Um, but if the money is not needed in full, I mean, frequently these trusts can get big. And if the money is going to the individual with special needs, by the time that person passes, the remainder in the trust can go on to other family members, uh, siblings, other children, you know, nieces and nephews. As opposed to if the money is given to the special needs child and it has to go into a first party trust, then that money has to get paid back to the Medicaid payback provision. Mm -hmm. And that's a big difference in my mind. Am I correct on that still? It's a huge difference. A charity can be a remainder, or a get the remainder as well mm -hmm. in that case right but i think medicaid in comes first yeah. right well i think in both in the other one well in, in a, a pool in trust a, in a third yeah. party trust you can designate who that ultimate beneficiary is and it can easily be uh, a, a family member uh, or charity such as down syndrome of louisville <laughs> um, or your next door neighbor or whoever you want it to be right uh, and in what Dan was saying is in a in a first party trust, you have the the Medicaid payback revision, which would take all of the assets of the trust in reimbursement for whatever Medicaid benefits the person received. That's why both Dan and Gordon both emphasize planning ahead with those things rather than acting. Um, what you say retroactively yeah, after yeah. the fact mm -hmm. after the fact uh, as far as the charitable uh, issue that you had mentioned uh, in the case of pool trusts which um, there's uh, d4a trusts b trusts c trusts it's it's a matter of how complicated we want to get with this but Why we're here today uh, yeah uh, in the case of a, a pool trust um, even a, um, a first party pool trust um, in that particular uh, case and Kentucky does have um, life plans they have a there is a, uh, a statewide uh, pool trust and if that's utilized even if it is a first party uh, meaning it's the own uh, disabled person's money going in there uh, there is a provision in the law that um, allows uh, charity uh, to uh, receive uh, before the Medicaid uh, payback but that's that's related to uh, the uh, D4C pool trusts as opposed to um, sp specifically the, the traditional first or third party. And why would you choose a pool trust over the other? Is that a clear definition? Um, or? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll speak briefly and then if one of the attorneys wants to jump in. I, I think the, um, uh, the main thing is, is uh, when, we, when we deal with planning, whether it's special needs planning or estate planning in general, in a way it's a casting call and you're casting for an event, the event is your passing. And there are different roles for people to play. And I think most people prefer to draw upon, it's what I call an assessment of family human resources. <laughs> Meaning who in the family can do what? Who can be an executor? Who might be a trustee? Um, who is your medical, uh, uh, medical power? And who, who has your general durable power and so forth? Who's gonna, uh, do things in the event of your illness, incapacity, your death, this type of thing. So when it comes to a special needs trust, uh, it's not short-lived. That trustee role may last decades. And so in some family situations, we look around and they're like, they're scratching their head, you know. Uh, do I designate uh, a sibling who's declared bankruptcy three times and, and can't seem to manage credit card debt? I'm just saying, you know. Or, or do I designate my brother, you know, who's on his fourth wife, you know, and I mean, and I'm, I'm kind of embellishing, but um, you know, after working with 3,000 families, you, it makes for interesting, you know. <laughs> so uh, in some cases, families look around and they're like, There's, they're slim picking. And so in that case, um, 
Um, options may include utilizing an attorney, having an attorney serve as trustee, some do, uh, having a, an institutional trustee, um, uh, you know, a trust company, that type of thing. Uh, but oftentimes in that situation when there just is no logical option or family option, uh, pool trust can be a very cost-effective uh, option and uh, we're fortunate to, uh, to have a great option in Kentucky for those that want to consider that. Again, family in most cases. In my case, my oldest daughter, um, uh, Liz, is the, the trustee for my son's special needs trust when my wife and I are gone. Uh, she happens to be a special needs attorney in Indiana, and like you said, and, and we're very blessed to have her in place. On the other hand, our other, uh, other daughter's an Air Force nurse. We love her to death, but we don't know if she's going to be in Germany, Japan, deployed to Afghanistan. I mean, how could, you know, it just, it's not possible, right. you know. So if you run out of family options, the pool trust can be one. The other thing I'll mention is, is to not overlook the pool trust as a default meaning you can designate uh, two or th even three family members, but sometimes pu putting a, uh, a uh, pool trust in as a default, meaning if all the family options poop out or, or uh, run for the border, you know, uh, then you know the pool trust is going to be there. And that, that can be comforting just knowing that if all else fails, uh, there, there is a default plan. Is it may add to that? Hey, Joe, um, the only other advantage that I would add to what Gordon said for a pooled trust is that when there's a limited amount of assets that we're looking at, um, it may not justify the cost that it um, comes along with setting up a separate trust. Um, so a pooled trust is a little bit um, cheaper to set up. With a pooled trust, it, there's actually one master trust document um, and then there's assets from several individuals. Um, that's what, why it's called a pooled trust. Um, that they're all pulled together and they're collectively managed, administered. Um, so sometimes when there's a limited amount of assets, um, the cost of setting up an independent trust might not be justified, um, so a pulled option may be better. Um, but going back to the difference between the first party and third party trusts, um, I've got a handout um, that talks about that. Um, it's for you guys. Um, so afterwards, if you want to get a copy of that, um, but again, that goes back to the importance of planning sooner rather than later. If we start planning now, we can set up a third party special needs trust within your all's estate plan that allows you to leave um, your son or daughter with special needs, um, a portion of your estate without affecting their eligibility. And it also allows you to name where that money goes if and when they pass. If you don't plan and something happens to you, that money um, goes to your son or daughter. Then we're in the first party special needs trust arena. And then we've got the Medicaid payback provision. Um, so it's very valuable to plan now and to take advantage of the third party special needs trust route than to wait and um, have consequences um, and get pushed into that first party special needs trust because then we have to worry about Medicaid payback. Um, so that's that's the the huge difference thank you and you touched on it briefly and who wants to answer one of the main questions though is what is the cost to set up a special needs trust i would say generally you're looking at a couple thousand dollars um it depends on the situation um richard do you want to add to that no i think probably uh anywhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand dollars is going to be a ballpark yeah uh, let, let, let me add um, that the process uh, is not financially onerous. It's affordable by most, by most families. Um, um, it's not as though one has to have an expectation of whipping out a checkbook and writing a check for $2,000 to get the process started. That is just not true. Um, um, you know, uh, attorneys here and others that we work with will work out uh, some time arrangements, a payment plan, uh, this type of thing. Really, the focus is your child and your family. And after 22 years of focus on this, um, I, I gotta say that um, there's a great passion to get families to the finish line, whatever it takes. And I know uh, we've worked with families, uh, shoot, uh, single moms living in Section 8 housing, surviving on child support, Social Security, and part-time employment. We get it done. Um, and, and so I don't want anyone to feel disenfranchised um, or, or to feel, well, that's beyond my means. Um, where there's a need, we figure out a way to, uh, we figure out a way to get it done. 
um, it, the, the work is too important. The other thing that, that, that I will mention is, is that um, uh, where SSI exists, and for most of you that have children that are 18 and over, uh, they already have SSI. For others, uh, that's, that's a journey that uh, may begin sometime in the, in the future. But SSI, I mean, as of 2020, $873 per month, tax-free. It's a stipend for food and shelter. And um, if you've not planned before, um, you know, the presence of SSI at age 18 may create funds uh, that come to the parents, in most cases, to reimburse for the cost of food and shelter. Um, and that can create funds to help pay for the planning process, et cetera. Um, so in a roundabout way, the, the government is helping with food and shelter. That frees up funds for you to, uh, to help get the planning done or even potentially to, uh, to fund the trust in some way. But I, I just wanted- Yeah, that's a great option too. You know, for everybody to know, this is really for everyone, not, not just people with assets. And as Matt mentioned earlier, you don't have to have a dime to put in the trust. The trust can be set up and it can sit empty for decades until the time of your passing and simply be funded by having been listed as the beneficiary on a life insurance policy. Um, and, uh, I think we have a question out here in the audience. Yeah. Did you sure. Okay, so the pooled trust, again, and I, I think, let's just reiterate what it is, and then I also was curious how the money coming out of the pooled trust works. You know, okay. do, you, do you get what you put in, or is it really pooled and shared okay. upon? Um, we've got the first party and third party. Um, the two main differences, like I said, is one, whose money is funding the trust, and two, where does the money go once the disabled beneficiary passes away? So with the first party trust, it's going to be your son or daughter's money, um, your son or daughter with special needs, it's going to be their money. Um, so for example, if they work, um, if they were in an um, accident and had a personal injury settlement, um, those are instances in which that's their money. And if that's the money that's being used to fund the trust, we're going to be in the first party special needs trust arena. Um, whereas third party, it's a third party's money. Generally, we're talking about mom and dad, maybe grandparents. Um, it's their money that's used to fund the trust. Um, so that's the first difference. Whose money? Second, where does the money go? The first party we talked about, um, Medicaid payback provision. Um, so when the disabled beneficiary passes away, uh, Medicaid can come in and recoup uh, benefits that they paid out over the course of the beneficiary's lifetime. Um, that's different from stable accounts, which we'll talk about later. Um, and the third party, special needs trust, the person setting up the trust, so mom, dad, maybe grandma, grandpa, whoever sets up the trust, they can name where the money goes after son or daughter with special needs passes away. Generally, a common um, instance is where it's mom, dad, They've got, let's say, two kids, one of which has special needs. What they'll do is they'll designate, okay, once son or daughter with special needs passes away, if there's money left over in the trust, it goes to the other child. Um, so those are the differences there. The pooled special needs trust, um, it depends on the trust document because um, it can be a first party or a third party depending on what the trust says. Um, um, so it, you'd have to look at the document um, there are organizations that um, operate pooled trusts. Um, they manage them. They administer them. Um, so it just depends on um, which organization, what the master trust document looks like. Um, in terms of getting money out and things like that, um, you're still going to be able to um, get money out of the trust. Um, there might be some limits on when you can get money out. Um, I have seen um, some companies that administer these pooled trusts, um, you can only get um, money out of the trust on certain um, uh, recurring basis, so maybe, you know, three times a quarter or something like that. Um, whereas if you had a standalone trust, um, it's up to the trustee. Um, you could go to them theoretically every day um, and they could um, take money out. Um, so there might be a little bit um, more restrictions in terms of access and getting money out in the pooled trust um, because you are dealing with an organization, um, a professional organization that's managing the trust, whereas um, the other trust, it's likely going to be a family member that's serving as trustee. Um, so it's a little bit more informal. Right. right. Does that, is that helpful? 
Yeah, I'd, I could add one other thing. The word pool refers to the con idea that a number of smaller trusts are all pooled together for investment purposes. That's where the word pool comes from. Uh, well, no, not co-mingled for the individual beneficiary. They're co-mingled for purposes of investment. Yeah. But you get your, your money stays your yeah, money. Yeah, the individual yeah. puts in, say, $2,000. They always have their $2,000. Okay. But that $2,000 isn't kept in a separate account. It's put together for investment purposes. That's yeah. where the word pool comes and from. And Kentucky Life is one of the common ones here in Kentucky, right? Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Kentucky. They used to have a lot of speak to what, how they handle things? Um, well, the the idea of the pooled, it's, it's, it's almost like thinking about like a company pension. It's like each employee has their, their, their little benefit, but all the funds are pooled together. Um, and so the, the idea, as uh, Matt mentioned, is to have a single document that everybody conforms to and all people's funds are pooled together, though accounting keeps track of how much belongs to each particular account in the pool trust. Um, so there are some control issues. Um, and so if you, you know, if you want family to be in charge, don't use a pool trust. Um, sometimes pool trusts see themselves uh, as um, uh, the keeper of the funds, and so they want to make sure the money's last. So if the trust beneficiary has a need and the uh, pool trust people, you know, running the pool trust feel it's going to deplete the trust too quickly, they may put the kibosh on it and say, nope, can't spend that much of the trust. That could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. If you've got a family member that's serving as the trustee and uh, they're frivolous, you know, the trust may only last a few years because, oh, sure, whatever, we'll pay for it, we'll pay for it, we'll pay for it. So what, what may be good can be bad, what bad can be good, it depends upon who's, who's involved. Sometimes uh, pool trusts like to hold to three to four percent of corpus per year. They don't want to distribute more than three to four percent of whatever the money that's in the trust because they feel like as long as they limit it to that, it'll last the lifetime of the trust beneficiary. And they don't want to wear egg when the pool trust is out of money, the trust <laughs> beneficiary needs something and they're like, sorry, it's gone. So, uh, you know, it, it's working through it and this is where professionals um, you know, uh, special needs planning is definitely a specialty. Uh, just like you got a cardiologist or you got a neurosurgeon or this type of thing. It is not a general area of practice. Whoever you work with, please make sure they go to, they go to work every day and special needs is what they do. Because, you know, those of us up here that do this every day see plans that are uh, awry with errors. Someone that has made a best faith effort uh, to help someone, no harm intended. But um, if all the I's are not dotted and T's are not crossed, then you've got Medicaid that can object, you've got Social Security, you've got uh, the, the state, you know, and this type of thing. And if you mix funds, the disabled person's funds and, and other people's funds and so forth, I, um, it's just really important uh, more than ever, uh, more so than 22 years ago, because 22 years ago, Social Security and Medicaid were not obsessing about these trusts. Now that there are hundreds of thousands of them out there, they want to know when they're funded and their notification requirements and so forth. It's just you, you really need to work with whoever it is that, that special needs is what they truly focus on um, uh, out of love for your, um, you know, for your loved one. But. Um, it is, it's exciting, you know, what, what we're able to do these days, yeah. yeah. Yes, I had a question about the uh, eligibility for special needs trust. Richard mentioned that this is for protecting Medicaid eligibility. Now, if you're not getting Medicaid, you are a special needs person, you have, uh, uh, you have the Social Security disability, are you still eligible for special needs trust? The short answer is yes. Uh, a special needs trust can be used in any situation. You, know, uh, you could set up a special needs trust if the individual uh, simply has a uh, need for help in managing their assets or their affairs. If there's a, even though they may be wealthy, they could have a half million dollars, the special needs trust would be a way to make sure those assets are protected and managed and all that sort of thing. Most of the time, the trust is geared around making sure that the person receives their benefits. That is the Michelle P or whatever, but it doesn't have to be. 
that was the question. Yeah. So that if, you, if you don't have SLP or yeah. Medicaid, and you are getting Social Security disability, then you can still set up. Yes. <laughs> if you uh, say we are legal guardians of our son, but that's in Georgia, not in Kentucky. So can you still set up special needs trust in Kentucky? Yeah, guardianship and the trust are two totally separate things. I have a whole set of questions on that. Yeah. Trust oh. <laughs> you, want me to get, okay. you want me to hold that? Yeah, let's hold on that. Okay. I just got a couple more of the trust things. Um, just make sure we covered anything. And if you all have other questions, jump in. Yeah. Um, we haven't talked about ABLE accounts and how it, that can help funding aside from with if that goes together. That was kind of the question and where that plays into this whole process. Yeah. So um, did you want to speak to that question first? I was just comment. going to say that the special needs trust is set up and it's designed um, to account for the beneficiary receiving benefits now or in the future. So you don't have to be receiving Medicaid or SSI in order to set up the trust. It can be something that we're setting up now with the anticipation that in the future they're going to be receiving these benefits. Um, so that kind of goes to that point. Okay. Right, um, Ma Matt's correct. There's okay. broad use on special needs trusts. Uh, it's very popular in um, all forms of disability. In some cases, disability uh, is something uh, from a medical standpoint that's going to come on later in life. You have a, a child that has the DNA of Huntington's or hemophilia or this type of thing, and it's predictable uh, or uh, muscular dystrophy. And so we know disability and decay, you know, lies ahead. And so uh, special needs trust is put in place even though the person may be pursuing a PhD today, but it's preparation for the, uh, preparation for the future. Also, if they simply are, are uh, reckless and can't handle money or can be easily taken advantage of by others. Um, and the benefit also of a special needs trust, there's no, there's no end date, meaning a parent can put that in place and know that they're protected funds for the lifetime of their child with special needs. And sometimes we get into the sticky mental health area, you know, and it's not that they lack capacity, you know, but they don't take their medications and this and that. There's all myriad of, uh, of situations where uh, the special needs trust is a godsend. And even though we've, we've made out first party trust to be just terrible and, and to be avoided at all costs, uh, first party trusts that were brought about as a result of OBRA 93, the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1993, so we've had them for 27 years, was a godsend. Um, and that's because uh, prior to that, if you inherited, you had to spend down like an elderly person in a nursing home. So if you had that grandparent that died and left $25,000 to your family member with Down syndrome, the 25 would have to be spent. It couldn't be given away, it couldn't be done away with, et cetera. But now with first party trusts, um, you know, whatever they've inherited can be immediately offloaded to a, to a first party trust and they're immediately can claim no assets or resources and uh, maintain eligibility for benefits or as Matt said, in settlement situations. And we see a lot of those, uh, medical malpractice, personal injury liability, manufacturer liability, every myriad of situations uh, where a settlement comes and that can be offloaded to a first party trust. Uh, as far as ABLE accounts, we have a hand though, yeah. go ahead. Do you have to pay taxes on anything that's in that trust? And if you if the person withdraws stuff, do they have to pay taxes? Uh, that's a great okay, question. well that's a financial thing, so I, are, are you okay if I? Go for it, Gordon. Okay. All right. <laughs> it, it depends upon the type of trust. Um, from a traditional planning standpoint, um, third-party special needs trusts typically function under a tax ID number that is uh, uh, at EIN, uh, an employer identification number, t tax identification number, as opposed to a social security number. So in the case of a third-party trust, as a part of that firewall where, as Richard said, it's not their money, it functions as its own separate identity. And um, 1099s, if they're, you know, when money's invested, et cetera, come under that tax ID number. And if um, interest, uh, dividends, and capital gains reach the point of needing to file, which is typically about $600, then a 1041, an entity return, will need to be filed on behalf of the trust. Okay, are you with me so far? Okay. okay. Uh, now, in the case of first party trusts, that is the individual, the individual with a disability, their money went into the trust. So for that reason, um, everybody knows it's their money, but uh, over 93 enables them to offload it to the first party trust. But because it was their money going in there, typically first party trust function under the social security number of the individual with a disability. And the, um, the dividends, capital gains, interest, et cetera, flow through to their personal income tax return. 
but because of the legislation, the fact that that income is shown on their, their 1040 or return is not going to be considered income for calculating eligibility for benefits. Uh, but there are tax advantages with special needs trusts. Uh, being considered a qualifying disability trust, there's an exemption of over $4,000. And so um, in, in interest, get dividends and capital gains, frankly, um, you've got to run a, a trust up into almost the six-figure range before you have any meaningful uh, tax liability. Um, and I mention that because anyone that is either uh, a tax person or a CPA knows that uh, otherwise without those tax advantages, it's easy to run into higher tax rates and trust faster than an individual. But there are some special considerations related to qualifying disability trusts. I hope that... So the short answer <laughs> is yes. But <laughs> sure. there's ways of different ways of navigating. Uh, yes. As far as ABLE accounts are concerned, <laughs> ABLE accounts are like a sidekick to special needs trusts. They came around, came about just a few years ago. Kentucky's got a great one, the stable account. Uh, it can be set up by going online. Um, at the same time, it's important to understand what ABLE accounts are and what they are not. They're not a panacea. They're not a substitute for a special needs trust. And it's not that everybody, just because they're available, everyone with a disability needs to have an ABLE account. Not so. Um, I think the uh, uh, situations where an ABLE account are particularly helpful is the unintended inheritance. If no, if no planning has been done and the individual with special needs receives any amount up to $15,000 in a calendar year, then an ABLE account can be set up. Those funds swept over to the ABLE account and they can claim no money. Um, and that's, that's a godsend with ABLE accounts. Um, also in situations of employment. So if you have someone, maybe they get a little part-time job or get some employment and you want to try to teach them the value of money or savings, this type of thing, then you can uh, take uh, income and set it aside into an ABLE account and they can see their monies grow. And, um, and then, you know, as a result of building that savings, maybe new bedroom furniture or they take a trip to Disney World or, or, or so forth. The, the areas that ABLE accounts can be spent on have broadened considerably uh, from um, uh, several years ago when they first came about. Uh, pretty, pretty liberal uh, these days. Now, uh, wh what they are not is the same as a third-party trust. How do they differ from a trust? Because you may be sitting there thinking, well, it sounds like we'll just do an ABLE account instead of a trust. Not, not so fast. Uh, ABLE accounts, number one, there's no provision for escaping the Medicaid lien that comes with first-party trusts. So with ABLE accounts, uh, it doesn't matter whose money goes in there. The state's going to have a lien. There is a benefit, though, and that is, unlike first-party trust, it, it is not for life. It's only from the time the ABLE account was set up forward uh, in terms of Medicaid benefits as far as that lien is concerned. Um, so, uh, uh, but ABLE accounts are what I call put-and-take save and spend type of options. They are not a long-term solution to amass or accumulate a substantial uh, sum of funds, not only because of the annual limitation of 15,000, although they can put in a little more if they have some earnings, um, but also because there's a $100,000 cap to maintain eligibility for Social Security. So it is not a substitute for state planning. It's more uh, a way to either save and spend or, or set aside funds received unexpectedly, et cetera. Um, okay. So, but, yeah. All right, thank you. Did anybody help me add that too? Yeah, I'd like to add one other quick thing, and, and that's the issue of control with an ABLE account. Everybody here from from Kentucky? We got anybody in Indiana? All right. You're in Indiana. Okay. okay. For Kentucky, Kentucky, <laughs> when it set up its ABLE account program, they decided, well, since we're horse country, we're going to call it stable accounts. <laughs> I don't know what they were smoking in Frankfurt, but that's what they came up with. <laughs> And then they had another brilliant idea. They said, well, we can't really figure out how to set up an ABLE account, so we're, we're going to piggyback onto the state of Ohio. They already have one set up. So if you open an ABLE account, your account is managed by the Fifth Third Bank of Cincinnati. <laughs> and the only reason I bring that up is uh, uh, Gordon mentioned about the, the differences between that and a trust. With a trust, the trustee controls the assets and the investments and the expenditures. With an ABLE account, Fifth Third Bank of Cincinnati makes those controls. And so that, in my mind, is a huge difference and well worth looking at those things real closely. Hmm. Go ahead, Matthew. I uh, would just add, I've, there's a handout over on the table. Um, it's front and back, and it talks about stable accounts. It gives basically all the important information that you would need. So if you're interested in those, pick one up before you leave. Um, also, a benefit with stable accounts, 
um, is it provides more autonomy for the individual with disabilities. Um, for example, you can opt in for the stable card, which is a loadable um, card. It acts similar to a debit card. Um, and if the individual um, is able enough to go out um, and maybe have a little bit of financial means in terms of not spending too much and things like that, um, it gives them a sense of autonomy. They can go out, they've got their own card, they can purchase stuff. Um, you as the parents um, or the administrator can limit how much is put on the card so um, you can um, prevent them from going out and spending you know everything um, and the money doesn't pull directly from the account whatever you put on the card let's say you put a hundred dollars on the card the money comes from the account but it goes directly to the card hundred dollars is all that's on there so once the hundred dollars is gone mm -hmm. then you've got to go back in and put more money on um, and you can also go online and uh, track the spending um, you can put notes hey this is what this was spent on um, because as I believe Gordon mentioned they have to be um, for what's called qualified disability expenses that definition is as long as this room um, but if you spend it on qualified disability expenses um, you enjoy the benefit of tax advantages um, if you if they're not qualified disability expenses you do have to pay taxes on those and there is a 10% additional penalty imposed on those um, so again there's a handout though so be sure to take that with you Thank you. let me mention one thing because I set up an able account for a family yesterday uh, perfect example of how it can work beautifully uh, they came to us because their uh, uh, their son uh, Isaac um, is 18 and they applied for SSI and were summarily turned down and very frustrated because Isaac is clearly disabled and unable to work, has a service dog and um, not very verbal and, and so forth, and they were just in such a quandary. As it turns out, medically he was qualified. The problem was is that they thought they were doing a great thing for Isaac when over the years they pooled all gifts that he had received and, and, and the money that they saved and so forth to a credit union account and um, $16,000. Well, Social Security had an issue with his having $16,000. As Richard mentioned earlier, if you hit $2,000, you're toast. So they wanted to know, what can we do with this $16,000, you know, quickly, because, you know, we're losing eight, $900 a month in Social Security. So an ABLE account, uh, in that case, uh, would be a wonderful option. Sweeping $15,000 leaves him with $1,000 under the two, and instantly become eligible, we've solved the financial problem for eligibility for SSI. Does that make, you know? Yeah. And, it, and it costs them almost nothing. I mean, 15 was, you know, here, now it's there, and we have SSI. Okay, thank you, that, that's hey, helpful. Julie, one final point on that, and you can also, like Gordon said, it's not a substitute for the special needs trust. So what, the way I like to look at it is, they work with one another, because you can set the trust up to where money can pass between them mm -hmm. um, so again they work together um, it's not you know you know a substitute for the other um, the best situation is where you've got both of them in place if the situation um, calls for it and then they can work together with one another so okay. perfect before, before we move on to guardianship questions specifically Dana do you have anything else to add about financial aid like funding your trust and yeah I, accounts? I, I, I just wanted um, there's an example, example that came up in the, in the audience um, where, say, a grandparent or aunt or uncle lists a bunch, say the grandparent lists a bunch of grandchildren, and one of the grandchildren is a special needs individual. That is a situation where, ideally, you'd rather not have that because if the money goes to them, you can, you can do the first-party trust, and it's not the worst thing in the world, but from a preserving family assets perspective, you want the money to go to a third-party trust. And my point is, it doesn't take a huge amount of planning to talk to your grandparents and aunts and uncles to try to avoid that and then to say we are setting up a third party trust please direct the money for our special needs individual to go there yeah. thank you and, and Julie out to piggyback off that when I spit, set up a third party special needs trust included within that will be a document that the parents can take to other family members that they think might contribute and it says if you're thinking about leaving money to so-and-so here's what we should do you know contact my office so that we don't 
run into the situation where they're just writing the person's name in their will, leaving money to them. Or on an IRA beneficiary yeah. designation. Yeah. I see that a lot. So, I mean, it's very easy. And it's always good intention, but that's scary. Yeah, we have that, that, yeah. Back. Yeah. A hand. Question? Go ahead. So, so if they are left money directly to the uh, beneficiary, the disabled beneficiary, can you move it to the trust? Yeah, no? that's what you guys were saying, right? You can yeah. move it yes. to the The short answer is yes. Um, it just depends on how that plays out, like Gordon and, and Matt and Dan all said. It depends on how it works, but there, one of those options will end up being a good way to move those funds, whether it's ABLE or a first party or a third party. It's just not the ideal way, right? There's yeah. still options. Can a, can a parent be the administrator of a third, a third party trust until their death? Trustee. Yes, typically we name the, the parents as the initial trustees. That happens frequently. It's a good question. Her question was if, if can you change the name of the trustee without being charged again for setting up a trust? Was that the question of the, the trustee? Yeah. yeah. Trustees can be changed relatively easily. Okay. Yes. Uh, I thought you were going for can you change the trust? Mm -hmm. The basic trust is what we call an irrevocable or irrevocable trust, mm -hmm. and you can't really mess with the language much. Does it cost to change the name of the person? Yeah, changing the person is easy. Yeah. So let's say right now, if our son is a baby and he's our only kid, and we're leaving, the, the person who would be in charge of it if something happened to us is his sister. But if he has siblings in the future and we want to change it to them, is that easy to do? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and Julie, I would add to that, for the third party special needs trust, um, it can be revocable or irrevocable at the start. Um, I like to set it up to where it's revocable um, at the start. It gives the parents more flexibility um, you know, as life goes on, changes come and go, assets come and go, situations come and go. Um, now it will become irrevocable, meaning it cannot be changed or amended um, for the most part once the parents pass away or until it's funded by someone other than the parents. Um, but at least at the start, um, you can freely change it and amend it um, and that gives the parents a little bit more flexibility. This has been the Kindness Warrior Podcast, a Down Syndrome of Louisville production. To learn more about Down Syndrome of Louisville, visit our website, downsyndromeoflouisville.org. If you have questions for us, email kindnesswarriorpod at dsoflou.org. It's also in the show notes. Music was written and produced by Alex Stotts and Owen Eiler. This episode was produced and edited by Ethan Holstein and me, Martin Lindsay. Your host was Carly Riggs. Thanks for listening to the Kindness Warrior Podcast here at Down Syndrome of Louisville. We are serving locally and sharing globally.